0: Hello, and welcome to episode 70 of Barefooting with Sierra. This podcast is recorded on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral land of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Ojibwe, Nakota Sioux, and others for time immemorial. I also would like to acknowledge that this land is home to the Metis Nation of Alberta and that I am a settler on this land. My name is Sierra Larson, better known as Barefoot Sierra. I'm a novelist, comic creator, and independent journalist. I've been living without shoes since 2010, and I currently use she, her, and they, them pronouns interchangeably. I created this podcast to keep my audiences in touch with all of my projects, to talk about things I care about, and to interact with the awesome people in my various professional networks. I break this podcast up into four parts, novels, comics, journalism, and barefooting, each representing a different aspect of my creative professional life. And in each episode, I also interview a creative entrepreneur about their professional life. In this episode, I interviewed professional ghostwriter Emily Crookston. Let's get started. First up, novels. My New Year's resolution was to read one book from the Texas banned books list each week. This week, I read The Mighty Heart of Sunny St. James by Ashley Herring Blake. At first, I was actually understanding of it being banned from schools. Right from the beginning, it prominently features the titular character's super disturbing and graphic thoughts about surgery and death. But the thing is that Sonny St. James is a young kid with major health problems and kids like that really do exist and really have thoughts and feelings like this. Reality deserves representation, and this book absolutely brings the representation. Sonny's doctor at the Children's Hospital, Dr. Ahmed, is a female Middle Eastern doctor, which I love to see because so often doctors are depicted as white men. Sonny's best friend, Quinn, is Puerto Rican, And then there's Sunny's mom, or rather, her Kate, because this story isn't just about a kid with a bad heart, it's also about a family who looks different, about a mother struggling with addiction, and a little girl who made up a story that her mom is a mermaid to explain her absence. This book was absolutely targeted for the list because it's about a bi-curious kid, but the story is about so much more than Sunny being curious about kissing girls. The mighty heart of Sunny St. James is just so cute and so well-written, with music and the ocean, two things Sunny cares about so much woven throughout the story masterfully. In book news, I might have to make it next year's resolution to read books off of Florida's banned book list after the latest report from Penn America, which found that other than Texas, which has banned 801 books from schools, Florida has banned more books than any other state. PEN America counted 566 book bans across 21 school districts in the state. Pennsylvania came in third place with 457 bans. The report, issued September 19th in recognition of Banned Books Week, emphasized that banning books endangers the free exchange of ideas necessary for a democracy. But hey, it's not all bad news for Pennsylvania. Philadelphia is holding their annual Latin American Book Fair September 22nd through 24th. This is a book fair for Latinos to showcase their books and to promote the idea that books written in Spanish and about Latinos are for everyone, not just Latinos and Spanish speakers. I would have loved this as a kid. My dad speaks Spanish, and we did have a few books in Spanish that he would read to me, and sometimes I would have him translate my storybooks on the fly. But there just weren't a whole lot of children's books available in any language other than English in early 90s America. If you go to this fair, please let me know how it is and send me pictures. Now on to comics. My latest comic, Plushie, is about all the attention my stuffed Stitch has gotten lately, especially from people at the psychiatric evening treatment program I started in August. My friend Chris, who loved possums and Lilo and Stitch, died unexpectedly in January. Another friend found this Stitch plushie that reminded both of us of Chris and sent it to me. You can see Plushie and my other comics on my comics Instagram, at World of Possums, and my comics Facebook page, Possum Pete Comics. In comics news, I just said comics a whole lot. (laughs) This year is Harley Quinn's 30th anniversary birthday. I'm not really sure what to call it. It's been 30 years since her debut in Batman the Animated Series. To celebrate Harley's 30th year, DC Comics has a whole host of activities planned for New York Comic Con, which takes place October 6th through 9th. Attendees can look forward to free Harley Quinn comics, swag, cupcakes, and even a fan breakfast. Sounds like it'll be a lot of fun, and even if you aren't there to see it, I'm sure there will be tons of photos on the DC Comics Instagram. Dark Horse Comics is moving their comic book, graphic novel, and manga distribution from Diamond Distribution, who have been their distributing partner for the last 30 years, to Penguin Random House, who currently sell and distribute Dark Horse books. Dark Horse thanked Diamond for their many years of partnership and assured fans that even after the new partnership takes effect on June 1st, their comics will still be available through Diamond. I have mixed feelings about this. It's obviously a great move for Dark Horse to be able to get their books in front of more eyeballs. Penguin Random House has huge distributive power, and anyone publishing through them is going to have an edge over books published by a smaller publishing house, just due to their sheer market power. But it's that market power that has me feeling uneasy. Penguin Random House already controls a quarter of the U.S. book market, and they're trying to purchase Simon & Schuster, another huge publishing house. That merger is on hold pending results from an antitrust trial, but still, they're scary big. Dark Horse has been almost an indie comic house for the longest time. Partnering with Penguin Random House is a big change for them, and I'm going to have to wait and see if it changes how the company feels to me. Not all change is bad, of course, and people should absolutely make money from their art. I just feel conflicted about it all. What are your thoughts on this distributor change up? Send me an email, sierra the barefoot girl at gmail.com, and I'll share your thoughts in the next episode. All right, next up is journalism. While I didn't publish any hard-hitting journalism this week, Voyage Utah magazine did a piece on me. I included a link to the interview in the show notes. And now for my interview with Emily Kirkston. Hi, Emily. Thanks so much for joining me. Great to have you on the show. Please tell the listeners a little about yourself, where you're from, and what kind of writing you do. Hi, Sierra. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm Emily Crookston. I am the owner and decider of all things at the Pocket PhD. I like to call myself uh, the ghostwriter for Rebels, Renegades, and Mavericks. Um, I love to help experts with big ideas get those ideas out of their heads and into the hands of their fans. Uh, I write business books and by business book, I mean, personal development and business development mainly. And, um, yeah, I'm in North Carolina, (laughs) Chapel Hill.
0: Excellent. So as a ghost writer, that's usually writing things that doesn't have your name attached to it. I've done, uh, copywriting, which, you know, writing backs of DVDs, product descriptions on websites, which is also writing that doesn't have your name attached to it. Where do you draw the line there? Like, at what point is it not your work anymore? How does that work for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Yeah. So
1: sometimes I get people coming to me asking for copywriting and I always say I'm not a copywriter. (laughs) Um, So you're right. There's a big difference between copywriting and ghostwriting um, and I can go into all of that. Uh, So what I'll say is I do content marketing uh, for LinkedIn. For example, I can create LinkedIn posts for you um, and there's some strategy involved in there. Um, So that is a form of ghostwriting that I do. Um, I also ghostwrite blogs or uh, ghost blog, I guess (laughs) some people People call it. Um, and yeah, no, not, almost nothing that I write has my name attached to it unless I'm writing it for myself and my business. Um, and to be really honest, I think that one of the, you know, I don't know, requirements uh, to be a good ghostwriter or to enjoy ghostwriting is not to feel really attached um, to the writing that you're doing. And that's probably true of copywriting to some extent as well. If you come up with a great piece of copy and you're like oh I wish I'd come up with this for my business <laughs> you know it can be it can be hard to give that away um, and that can happen with ghostwriting books as well like oh I wish I'd come up with that idea um, but for me what really separates it is like I don't even think of those ideas as mine I really am seeing myself as the mouthpiece for my authors, um, and that goes for all the ghost writing I do, but especially for the books. Um, You know, I couldn't come up with the idea that you come up with because you're the expert. I've written books for, uh, for example, I wrote a book for a pelvic floor physical therapist, I know next to nothing about the muscles in the pelvis. (laughs) I learned a lot in the project, uh, in the process of writing that book. Um, But, you know, so it never really felt like mine because I was really just amplifying and and putting on the hat, honestly, um, of the first reader or, you know, putting on the hat of her audience members and trying to make sure that her message was coming across loud and clear
0: almost like a medium who's like channeling a spirit of of communicating their message across. Yeah, I like that a lot.
1: Um, Sometimes I describe it as like I'm an actor. I'm putting on an actor hat, a persona um, when I'm writing. I often even when I'm taking notes in conversation with my authors, I'm trying to capture their language. You know, I'm really taking the notes in their voice if I can. You know, that's that's all really helpful.
0: Yeah, I bet that would be really immensely helpful because that would be personally a struggle for me to write in someone else's voice. How do you do that?
1: Yeah, it's super challenging. I think I have a natural capability um, around it. Um, I was the oldest of five children and I think that experience helped me learn a lot about empathizing with other people. And, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to keep the peace in the house. So I kind of felt like an ambassador or something, a a diplomat um, at times. And I think that allows me to kind of put myself into their shoes really easily. Um, And I think I'm a word person. Every writer is probably a word person. Um, So I pick up on little nuances and I hear oh, that person talks this way, that's an interesting turn of phrase, you know, oh, I wouldn't have thought to say it like that, or, oh, that's a joke, you know, (laughs) I like that joke, you know, and so I might hear that language and and pick up on it. And just, you know, I keep it in my mind. Um, Sometimes I think about, you know, maybe I should be recording the calls I have with people and, and going over them carefully. But I don't know, if I'm taking good notes, it tends to stick Um, pretty easily. And that's another part of my process with ghostwriting is I meet with my authors every week while we're working on the project. So the more I'm hearing them talk and the more I'm reading what they write, you know, I get into the flow of their voice.
0: How many books would you say that you have ghostwritten?
1: Um, I have ghost written or edited, um, around 20 books. I've been doing, I've owned my business for five years and I've really only been doing book ghost writing and editing for the past three years or so. And I only work on one ghostwriting project at a time and it's a 16 week process. So I can really do two or three at the most a year of ghostwriting books. Yeah.
0: that's quite impressive. Like I'm about to launch my sixth book next year and I've been writing since 2014. So yeah, yeah. I know a book a year is
1: a lot for a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah,
0: for sure. Like 20 in five years. That's intense. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you've probably learned a lot about what makes a book successful and what doesn't. We see all the time, though, that some books that hit the bestseller list are just not great 50 shades (laughs) of gray comes to mind (laughs) what makes books sell really well even if they're not great yeah, you know,
1: it's it's kind of in some ways it's sad and in some ways it's encouraging, but it's all about the marketing. It's all about the promotion more than anything else. Um, so yeah, so that means a lot of really good books end up sitting on the shelves collecting dust while a lot of terrible books end up maybe on the bestseller list. Terrible depending on, you know, what your genre is and what your what you what you call qual- what qualifies as excellent writing in your mind, of course um but yeah you know it's i will say i think that the publishing industry industry is is broken in a lot of ways it really needs to come into the 21st century. Um, And, you know, so a lot it hinges on right now, who are the gatekeepers? Um, And so, you know, if you get a publishing contract with Wiley, it might take you 10 years, um, but you might be able to do it with the right agent. Um, And so then your book has a really good chance of getting on the bestseller list. Um, Also, if you have a huge audience, you know, if you have, if you're an influencer and you have hundred thousand people in your audience, it's not that hard for you to sell 25,000 copies of your book, which is what you need to be on the bestseller list Um, and so it doesn't at that point really matter what the quality of the book is um, to be honest because if you have a big enough following um, and you have you know people who are just waiting to buy up whatever you create um, then you can get on the bestseller list so yeah there's a lot of factors that you know, are, are probably unfair and point to other inequalities in society, um, that go into all of that stuff. And, you know, as with any type of gatekeeping, there's going to be those kinds of, you know, uh, challenges there.
0: And there definitely have been those influencers who put out a book and it's so bad. I couldn't even finish it. What even yeah. is this? <laughs> right, I
1: know, I know. Yeah, and I mean, it points to like you know, you you get you work really hard, maybe on the first book, and you break it into the bestseller list. You get on there, and then you know you could coast after that. To be really honest, once you're on the bestseller list, it becomes really easy to sell sell out more of your next book. And um, so I could see the temptation for for authors to just kind of like. Eh, I don't need to put in on the effort to the next three or four books you know um, it's yeah it's it's interesting it's interesting
0: I don't know personally I don't think I could just not put in the effort on a book because like, that's my story it's my baby I'm putting it out into the world but yeah I don't know totally. some people it's just like
1: book money fame Right. Right. And I think it happens more with people who, you know, they're selling themselves in all kinds of ways. And it's not just about the authorship. It's not just about the books they're writing, you know, they're, they're selling their courses or they're selling, you know, their, their brand as it were. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yes. There are, there are definitely those people out there in this day and age of the internet. Yeah. So with having written so many books, what are you know, the biggest lessons that you've learned and advice that you can give to people who are writing, you know, on their own.
1: Yeah. So the first piece of advice I always give to new authors is just that when you're writing, it can feel like the writing itself is work it's the marathon right and you've you've been working on your book for a year it's finished you're like celebrating yay but that's really just the beginning because you really need to promote that book to to make sure it gets into the right hands um and to make sure that you sell more than a few hundred copies if that's your goal um yeah so that's one thing realize that the promotion and marketing is just as important as writing a great book um and you know, it it, it takes time to write a book. It's hard work. It takes a lot of effort. Um, So the biggest question I always ask my clients is, uh, what's the business case for this book? Um, You can have a a desire to write a book. And, you know, a lot of people writing memoirs or writing fiction, um, you know, they have this drive to write a book and it really comes from inside of them but for the people i'm working with specifically around business books and and personal development and business development there really needs to be that tie in to the business side as you know not only motivation for getting the book done during those moments where it gets hard but also in thinking about you know if you're a business owner What's your revenue driver? It's probably not a book, (laughs) right? So you've got to really tie that book into your revenue in some way to sort of justify spending that time um, on writing the book or spending the money to have the book written if that's uh, the direction you want to take. So, what's the business case, or you know, what's your motivation if if you are writing a book that has nothing related to business, right? What what is the big why? What is the the motivation to getting it done? Um, Because every author comes up against an obstacle as they're writing, and in those moments, you need something to to go back to 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 keep you moving forward. Otherwise, you know, you'll be the person who calls me up and says, "I've been trying to write a book for ten years, you know, (laughs) and it's just not happening." Um, so yeah, that's, that's, those are the biggest things I would say. Um, the other thing is, you know, people ask me all the time, um, you know, I want to write a book, but I don't have the time, you know, how do I find the time to write a book? And, you know, it really is about making book writing fit into your life. You know, if you're working 10 hours a day, it's going to be tough to find the time to write that book, but maybe you need to get up earlier or maybe it's the weekend, you're a weekend warrior, and you're gonna, whatever it is. Like, set your goal, make it realistic for you, and then be self-disciplined and stick to it. Um, you'll be surprised how quickly the words will add up. Even if you're just, you know, if all you can do is 30 minutes on the weekend, <laughs> the words will come. They'll add up. Not, it's not just about the time, right? It's about having that energy and feeling the flow of of the words coming. So, yeah, if 4 a.m. is your time, then that's that's what you do.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and tell us a little bit about your business, the pocket PhD.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, uh, with the business, most of my business is ghostwriting, um, as we've been talking about. So ghostwriting books, um, I also have recently introduced some LinkedIn services. Um, so, you know, I will do content strategy and content creation, uh, for, Experts who want to get the word out on LinkedIn, um, that can be done on a monthly basis, and it includes uh, blogging as well as part of that service. So those are, those are my main, main um, service offerings. Uh, I am working on starting to build my team with the Pocket PhD. Um, So at some point those LinkedIn services um, will be uh, done by both me and my team (laughs) together. Um, But yeah, so the LinkedIn services are kind of a new shift I've had um, prior to the pandemic. Uh, I got a lot of my business through referrals and through networking in person. And when that went away, I said, "Okay, I've got to lean into online networking. And that became, you know, the project that I did with LinkedIn. I through that through the course of just using LinkedIn daily for a couple of years, I've learned a lot. And so that all of that gets shifted into the services that I'm offering to my clients now.
0: I don't understand LinkedIn at all. So kudos to you on that. Um, (laughs) I'm not a LinkedIn person. I have a profile that I think my picture on there is from 2013.
1: yeah well it's interesting because you know a lot of people think of LinkedIn as just this space for job seekers or just this place to go to find job candidates if you're running a business um, and it's sort of exploded it's become more of a platform for almost everybody and the great thing about creating content on LinkedIn is that there's something like 400 million users on LinkedIn but something like only three million actually create content on a consistent basis for the platform so it's a pretty big, you know, opportunity, uh, to put out content. And so a lot, I've noticed a lot of business owners, a lot of authors are really starting to use LinkedIn more, um, as a place for personal
0: branding. Good to know. I might have to figure out this LinkedIn thing. (laughs) You might want to check it out. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Uh, where can people find you online and connect with you on social media?
1: Yeah. So obviously you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Emily Crookston there. Uh, You can also find me on my website, which is thepocketphd.com. And I'm on Twitter, EM Crookston, um, although I'm not that active on Twitter.
0: (laughs) Well, Emily, it's been so great chatting with you. Thank you so much again for joining me. Thank you, Sarah. It's been great. Last but not least, let's talk about barefooting. My barefoot adventures this week involved a conflict with a mall security guard. He refused to let me into a mall that I've been shopping barefoot in for 12 years and cited a mall dress code. He pointed to the mall rules that were posted in the entry. He read me the rules on appropriate attire. Appropriate attire must be worn inside the shopping center. Attire may be considered objectionable, constitutes a disguise, hoods, or is intended to conceal the identity is not permitted which to me means uh, anything that's considered objectionable to me would be like something with naked people on it or like gang symbols or hate speech. But according to this security guard, who I have never seen before that day, so it must have been pretty new, objectionable attire was not having shoes on. I had dislocated my knee and I was on my way to the pharmacy to pick up medication. I was already in a bad mood and this guy was making my day even more difficult. I'm okay with admitting that I did not handle the situation well. I ended up yelling at the security guard, which didn't help my case. I did eventually get into the mall, got to the pharmacy, and got my medication, but only after I went all the way back to my vehicle and put my emergency shoes on. I just hope that security guard isn't working on the night they do trick-or-treat at the mall, because if he is, he's going to lose his mind over all those kids wearing hoods, disguises, and clothing intended to conceal identity. In barefoot news... Kevin Valenzuela, a biomechanics professor at California State University Long Beats, just put out the results on his study on weight training barefoot versus wearing athletic shoes. He found that the study participants who lifted weights while wearing shoes had to work harder to lift the same amount of weight compared to those who were lifting barefoot. Otherwise, there was no significant performance difference. The difference in effort is likely due to the height difference created by the sole of the shoe. While going barefoot doesn't significantly affect weightlifting, being barefoot while just walking helps strengthen the muscles in your feet and helps your brain better understand where your body is in space, known as proprioception. Country artist Jake Owen, most famous for his song Barefoot Blue Jean Night, confirmed in an interview that he does indeed prefer to be barefoot. WOKV 97.5 interviewed him in advance of his September 22nd show in Hampton, New Hampshire. The show host, Kira, asked Jake Owen if he puts his socks and shoes on sock, shoe, sock, shoe, or sock, sock, shoe, shoe. Owen replied that he doesn't really like socks and he's more of a barefoot guy. If he has to wear shoes, he wears flip-flops, which is really the only answer I would expect from someone who sings about barefoot blue jean nights. Anyway, that's all for this episode. I'll be back in the next episode with Jay Silver and Brooklyn Metric, author and illustrator of Trevor the Pterodactyl. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to sierrathebarefootgirl at gmail.com. Thank you to Legion X for my intro and outro music. You can find me on Twitter at SierraBarefoot and on TikTok at SierraIsBarefoot. My Instagram is at sierrathebarefoot. All of my books are available on Amazon and on my website, sierrathebarefootgirl.com. My Patreon is patreon.com slash possumpeat. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. Until next time, this has been Barefooting with Sierra.